You know, we really don't know who we are unless somebody tells us. You ever thought about that? We really don't know much of our heritage, much of our ancestry, much of our background, much of our context, unless there is someone that is there that can explain it to us. I can remember being a teenager, and my family kind of has a long history in this specific community, and I can remember being a teenager, and my grandmother, she would have to pick me up and take me to like the dentist or something, right? Like that was her job in the family, her role. And she would always take the longest possible route to get where we were going. And she would drive me around and she'd say, you know, that's where your great-grandfather built the cabin that I was born in. And that's, that's where your great-grandmother was born. There's the chimney to the house that was born. And there's the waterfalls where she used to play. That's how we lost this land. And that's how we came to have this particular land. And that's how this all came together and take place. And can I just be honest with you? When, it was my, when I had to ride with her, I hated it with every fiber of my being. Like, I was not fired up about the Rabbit Town Lecture Series. You know what I'm saying? But I think back and I realize what she was doing. She was giving me roots. She was showing me who I was and where I came from and what my story was. She was giving me the context of my heritage so that I would have some understanding of where I came from and what it took to get to where we are right now. Something that could only be passed down to me so that I could pass it down to the next generation. Something that was priceless. Because there's something inside of us that wants to know, isn't there? There's a drive inside of us so that we might even say that our souls are unsettled when they don't know their story. So we have Genesis. So we have Genesis. And Genesis is the context of our story. Genesis is the context of humanity. Genesis is the context of the gospel. That the writer, that God, through Moses, gives us Genesis so that we might know where we came from and what it took to get us here and why the world is as we see it to be and why it is that we're experiencing what we're experiencing and where it ultimately is headed. And so this morning we're going to start our series on the big story where all stories begin in the beginning. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn to me to the very first page of the very first book, Genesis chapter 1. Now, this morning we're going to do something that's a little bit different. We're going to read a lot more scripture than what is typically. What I want to do is I want to read all seven days. We're actually going to talk about Genesis 1 and 2 this morning. But I want to read all of the first seven days. And one of the reasons that I'm doing that, and I have the conviction to do that, is we have a lot more people, praise God, we have a lot more people that are coming to our church that have no history in the church. They, have no, they don't have a background. They haven't heard the seven days of, of creation. So for all of this to make sense, the foundational passage of the entire Bible is the first chapter of Genesis. So I think we ought to read it together. And since it's going to take a bit of time, if you don't have the stamina to sand, I want you to remain seated because it is not going to bring offense to me at all. It's not going to bring offense to any of your brothers and sisters. We totally get it, all right? So for those who can, would you stand with me as we read God's word together? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. 
And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, and each according to its own kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs, and for seasons, and for days, and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth, and it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give them light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion of the, over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. 
So our story begins where every good story begins. It begins by telling us the characters and the settings, the, the context, so that we can know what the rest of the story has to say. The context so that we can begin seeing how things fit together, so that we can understand our heritage, so that we can understand who we are. And as it begins, it begins by sharing with us who the main character of this story is. And it's not very subtle about it. The story kicks off by letting us know that the main character is the king. In fact, if, we were to, if you were to see this in the original language, in the Hebrew, you would see that it's just the second word. In the beginning is all one word in Hebrew. So the very second word of the biblical revelation is the word God, Elohim. And so it begins right out of the gate. And the second word in all of the recorded scripture by telling us that the main character is the king. The main character is God. And it would go on through Genesis 1 to use the name God 35 different times. Leaving no question as to who it is that's running this show. Who it is that is putting all of these things together. And in, the author of Genesis is constructing this in such a way so that we can understand some very clear things about the nature of God and about the character of God. That is that he's describing God in a very particular way so that we can understand who he is and what he's doing and what he's going to do. First we see that he is a sovereign king. He is a sovereign king. That his decree goes out, and when his decree goes out, it is unstoppable, it is irrevocable, and it cannot be challenged. That he is there in the midst of the darkness, and he speaks to the darkness, and the darkness listens to him. He commands over the darkness without any other substance in all of the cosmos. And he says, let there be light, and in the midst of darkness and vastness, the sky illuminates. Over the face of the deeps, the Spirit of God hovering, the Spirit who brings order, the Spirit who brings arrangement, the Spirit who carries forth the decree of God. And he speaks and he says, let the expanse emerge. And from the depths out of the seas, the earth comes and begins to form. That he speaks in ex nihilo, from nothing. There is everything. That his decree from the beginning is the establishment of the earth. The establishment of the creation. The establishment of everything in the creation. And it is what will sustain the creation. This is why John starts his gospel the way that he does. Using the same word that it says in Genesis 1, if you were to compare the Septuagint. And he says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. That Christ, the, the Word of God, the decree of God incarnate has come to remake the world. To reform what was originally made and then deformed. And you see, the gospel is already being set up for us. Because the only hope that the gospel is true and that the gospel is the lasting hope of the world is if the gospel comes to us from the creator of all things. The only hope that the good news is going to be good news that cannot be stopped and is irrevocable is that it comes from the sovereign Lord of the universe, the maker and owner of all things, the one who cannot be opposed, the one who cannot be stopped, the one who cannot be threatened. And so out of the gate, out of the gate, God is establishing that he is sovereign over all things. He is sovereign over the darkness and over the light. He is sovereign over the depths and over the earth. He is sovereign over the chaos to bring ultimately to order. That is that Genesis 1 is establishing that God has no rivals. 
Genesis 1 is establishing that God has no rivals. You see, God has placed eternity in our hearts. Do you know that? God has placed eternity in our hearts. That if you were to go and you were to meet every people group in all of history, as far back as you go, as, as remote as you want it to be, if you were to find the most remote indigenous tribe of South America, what you would find among that tribe is you would find a tribe of worshipers. You would find a tribe of worshipers. They may not know whom they worship. They may not know what they worship, but they are worshiping because they know that there is something, someone, a power, a force that is larger than them, that is beyond them, that is transcendent for them. And so what human history has often done is look to these transcendent powers or these, these, immeasurable, uh, these, these immeasurable lights, these immeasurable ideas. They've searched for philosophies and they've reached out to unconquerable frontiers. We've looked to lights like the sun that we can feel but not touch, that we need but can't control. We've looked to the moon, which is dark and mysterious and appears to be ferocious to us. We look to the oceans that we, we can't see the end of and we can't con completely contain. We look to the weather and we see all of these things and we're drawn into worship. We're provoked to worship. And so Genesis is here, out of the gate, refuting all of that. Refuting all of that. Is eternity in your heart? Good. Do you find in you a propensity toward worship? Good. But when you look to the sun and you begin to sing to the sun, remember, remember, it was God who put the, early, the, the larger light in the day and the smaller light in the sky at night. When you look up to the 10 octillion stars that paint the galaxy that you can behold farther than you can even begin to comprehend and you're prompted to worship or you, you look around and you see the snow-capped mountains in the Rockies or the vastness of the Grand Canyon and you feel yourself feeling small and provoked to worship. Good, good. But don't you sing to the canyon. Don't you sing to the stars, for it was in the beginning that God made the heavens and the earth. When you stand on the edge of the, of the beach and you look over the vastness of the Atlantic and you find yourself feeling as though you are menial and small and insignificant and provoked to worship to this unconquerable frontier that's in front of you. Good. But don't you sing to the Atlantic. Don't you sing to the Atlantic, for it is God that told the ocean where to stop and put it in boundaries and told how far it could go and where it must stop. Look down at your feet and see the sand that is beneath them and know that there is a Father. There is one that is greater, that has dug the oceans and holds the waters of them in the hollows of his hands. Don't look around you and worship Look around you and let the creation point you toward the creator. Let all that you've beheld show you as big as it is and as mighty as it is and as transcendent as it appears and as unconquerable for us as it is to realize that all of it is merely the drop in the bucket of the creativity of the almighty himself. That it's pointing to one that is far more sovereign, one that is far greater and that's a word for us. That when you're tempted to worship a place or a thing, a person or a philosophy, whatever you buy or you inherit, that you're tempted to aim your life at and live your life for, you must understand the message of Genesis 1 is that ultimately it will find its purpose or its demise in the scope of the providence of the Almighty. 
His decree is irrevocable and unstoppable. He has no rivals. His will cannot be thwarted. His promises cannot go unfulfilled. His good news can have no bad news that takes it off course. He is the sovereign. He is worthy of your allegiance and he is worthy of your devotion. He is your Lord. And so the message of Genesis 1 is an invitation. It's an invitation to you to come and to worship your king. It's an invitation to you to come and to bow before the true Lord of all. He is a sovereign king. And he is a wise king. He is a wise king. You'll notice uh, where it starts in Genesis. It starts and it's without form and void, right? That, that everything, the earth, is submerged in water and in darkness. That Genesis 1 is vastness and darkness and chaos when it begins. But that's not how it ends, is it? Genesis 1 begins in chaos and ends in order. It begins with vastness and then it ends with, with population and sustenance. It, it begins with, with emptiness and with void, but, but it ends with schools of fish, teeming rainforests, towering mountains. Calvin says that the creation is a grand theater. A grand theater which is constantly proclaiming to us the glories of its maker, the glories of its creator, the glories of our God. That what we see right out of the gate, that our God brings order to the chaos and he brings it in his order. He's the opposite of all the other ancient gods. See, all the other ancient gods, you would, you would go and you would wonder and you would worship the sun, but you couldn't really know what the sun was thinking. And you would, you, would, you would go and try to appease them so that they would send the rains at the right time and so that they would send prosperity at the right time and so that you wouldn't send, experience famine at the, at the wrong time. But you never really knew. There was mystery. That is, the, the ancient gods brought chaos. They introduced chaos. But not the God of Genesis. Not the God of Genesis. The God of Genesis comes and he speaks to us. He talks to us. He tells us how we can live in his kingdom. He tells us how we can thrive as people. He tells us how we can experience the glories of the covenant. He brings order where there was chaos. He brings, he brings comfort where there is distress. He brings, he brings hope where there is despair. Right out of the gate. There's a beautiful symmetry to creation, isn't there? You thought about this? If you take the six days and you divide them in half, he takes the first three days and he forms the earth, and he takes the last three days and he fills the earth. In fact, you can even see how the days correspond with one another, that if you lay the three days side by side, day one corresponds with day four, and five, or three to, one to five, and three to four, what, y'all, one, one to four, and two to five, and three to six, that's what I'm trying to say. You guys are tracking with me. But day one, you have the light. Day four, you have the light bearers. Day two, you have the heavens and you have the seas. And day five, you have the birds that are filling the heavens and you have the fish that are filling the seas. Day three, you have the earth with its multiplying vegetation and its seed-bearing fruits. And day six, you have the beasts of the earth and mankind, the apex of all of creation there to multiply and to eat and to be sustained. That there is a symmetry, an order to all of creation. 
And this informs our understanding of the gospel. This informs our understanding of the gospel. That God, in his wisdom, eliminates the chaos by his design. But, 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 what happens when we step outside of the design of God? What happens when we step outside of the design of God? It brings chaos back. It brings chaos back. We, we have been given the design of the Lord so that we can thrive, so that creation can thrive, so that there can be abundance among the earth. But as we step outside of the design of God, as we step outside of the plan of God, as we step outside of the intentions of God, the reintroduction of chaos ensues. This is what Romans 8 is talking about when it says that the whole creation has been subjected to futility. This is what Romans 1 is talking about when it talks about how we've seen the earth, we've seen the truth, but we suppress the truth. How, how all of the earth is, is grumbling and groaning. And now we have men and women that are exchanging unnatural, unnatural relationships for our natural relationships for unnatural relationships. What does that mean? It means they're stepping outside of the design of God. They're stepping outside of the design of God. And what ensues is chaos. What ensues is brokenness. What ensues is pain. What ensues is strife. That there becomes a lawlessness. A lawlessness. A sense in which we just all do what is right in our own eyes. And what used to appear right now appears unreasonable. And what used to appear wrong now appears right. And it's utter chaos and it's utter confusion. And there is now no moral center, nothing that is actually good, nothing that is actually true, nothing that we can actually count on. But the gospel, but the gospel is setting it all right. The gospel is the story of how God, through Jesus, is renewing and restoring and reordering his creation according to his own design. I wonder in your life, I wonder in your life where it is you're stepping outside of the design of God. I wonder if it's sexually. I wonder if it's relationally. I wonder if it's with your ambitions. I wonder if it's with you living for a purpose that is beyond God and filled with yourself. I wonder where it is you're stepping outside of the design of God because you can be certain that wherever it is that you're stepping outside of the design of God, you are inviting chaos into your life. He is a sovereign king. He is a wise king and he is a loving king. He is a loving king. And we see it right out of the gate from Genesis 1 and 2. You know, it never says that he's loving, does it? You don't, you don't read in Genesis 1 and 2, and God is love. God is love. I mean, that would simplify things a bit, but it tells us, it is clear from the very beginning that God is love. Have you ever thought about that in Genesis 1, what we have are the very first judgments of the Bible? Ever thought about that? That, that God passes judgment over his creation. That he makes it, and every single day after he makes it, what does he do? He passes judgment. He says, and it was good. That from the beginning that the creation was built to reflect God's holiness and reflect God's character and to express God's love. That God made the creation good and he made it well and he made it with excellence and he made it with righteousness and purity and holiness. He made it to reflect him and he made us to reflect him. And seeing it all, he passes the judgment and he says, it is good. Of the mountains, they are good. Of the habitats, they are good. Of the oxygen cycle and mankind, behold, behold, it is 
very good. See, in, in Genesis 1 and 2, there's only two categories. There's only two categories. There is good and there is evil. There is good and there is evil. See, we see that because of the tree that's placed right in the middle, don't we? It is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The two categories that we see right out of the, from the outset is there are two judgments. There are, are blessings and condemnations. There is, there, is, there is what is proper and what is wrong. There is what is in order and what is in chaos. There is what brings, brings God reproach and there is what brings God glory. There is good and there is evil. And God made all that there was and God made all that we are and God made all that we have seen and God sees it and he says, and it is good. It is above reproach. It is in perfection. It is in holiness. It is, it, is, it is sterling in every way that it can be sterling. A reflection of his love. A reflection of his love. He made your food as good as it could be. He made your habitat as good as it could be. He made you as good as you could be. And it was because of his love. This is what Jesus saw. Jesus anchors his point of Matthew chapter 6. You remember what he says in Matthew chapter 6? He says, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. Why? Can a sparrow fall from the sky and God not know it? Do, do the lilies of the fields of places you don't know about and have never seen, are they not clothed in more splendor than Solomon himself? Well, if God loves the birds and God loves the grass, don't you think God loves you? That Jesus looks at the creation, what did he see there? The love of God, the love of God the provision of God, the kindness of God. And so the point is, is for Jesus is to say, if, if God loves all of these things that are inanimate, all of these things that cannot even praise, how much more will he love his people? How much more will he love his children? See, there's a, there's a, there's a shift that takes place between Genesis 1 and 2, a shift. In Genesis 1, the name of God is Elohim. It speaks to his power, to his majesty, to his, to his ferocity, to, to his wonder, to his sovereignty. But we get into Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, and you know what name for God we find? Yahweh. Yahweh. Yahweh is the covenant name of God. It is the relating name of God. It is the providing name of God. It is the name of God when he goes to his people and says, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will obligate myself to you and I will provide for you and I will care for you and I will minister to you. I will be your God and you will be my people. And right here in Genesis 1 and 2, we see God saying that to us, that more than any other part of creation, set apart from everything else that we know, that we, we, we have the opportunity to relate to him, that he loves us. This is the spine of the gospel, isn't it? This is the spine of the gospel. That he is a sovereign king, worthy of our allegiance, worthy of our devotion, our Lord, our owner, our owner, our master. He is the sovereign king, able to overcome anything that would be an obstacle between us and him. And he is a wise king. A king able to overcome our own wretchedness, our own wickedness, our own mess without compromising his own integrity, without compromising his own holiness. Only a king as wise as him could figure out a plan like that. And he is a loving king. He is a loving king. The kind of king that will stop at nothing, at no cost to himself, that you might be reconciled to him, that his creation might be reordered and renewed. 
even at the cost of his own son. So right here in Genesis 1 and 2, the, the spine of the gospel is running through it. We don't just see the main character is the king. We see the plot involves his governors. The plot involves his governor. So in the ancient kingdoms, you'd see something very similar to what you'd see if you go to Swaziland today. If you go to Swaziland today, you'll, you'll come into the, to the border crossing, and do you know whose picture is there to greet you? King Maswati, right? You, you go to all of the, the government buildings, and there is King Maswati's face everywhere that you look. Yeah, a lot of the, the locals will wear, will wear garments, and on those garments is King Mazwadi's face. And why is his face plastered everywhere for every far reach of the kingdom? It's plastered everywhere because it shows his dominion. It shows his rule. It shows his authority. It shows his ownership. It shows that you will be accountable to the king, that you are the owner of the king. You are at the, at the pleasure of the king. And in antiquity, you would go and, and there would be governors and regents that were the far reaches of the, commun of, of the kingdom. And there in their houses would be a picture of the king. And it was to say that this man operates under my authority. This man rules with, with my seal and with my approval. Now, let's listen to verse 26 again in that light. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing. We are the king's picture. We are the king's image. His glory shines through us so that as we multiply, the glory of the king and the authority of the king spreads throughout the creation, spreads throughout the kingdom. See, God's plot involved us from the beginning. God blesses us that we might bless the world. That, that's why we have dominion and that's why we multiply. That what we have in Genesis is the seedlings of the Great Commission. The seedlings of the Great Commission to be fruitful and multiply, to spread and to permeate the earth. Because as we spread and as we permeate the earth, so does the glory of God spread. So does the authority of God spread. So does the fame of God spread because we, we are his image bearers. See, our dignity, our dignity comes from God's design. Our dignity comes from God's design. We are all on a search for dignity. Our society is on a search for dignity. And we keep trying to discover it by asserting our independence and asserting our autonomy. But what we keep finding is we keep finding chaos. We become convinced that if we can just sleep with who we want to sleep with and buy what we want to buy and live how we want to live and, and be able to make decisions the way that we want to make decisions, that finally, 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 one night we're going to be able to come home and look in the mirror and not be repulsed by the person that we have there looking back at us. But dignity is not found in who you sleep with. And dignity is not found by how many people like your posts on social media. And, me, and dignity is not found by who you have or don't have to come home to every night. Dignity is not found by how many children you're able to have or how many children you can't have. Dignity is not found by being married or by being single. Dignity is not found by having a job that comes with status or a job that nobody else wants. Dignity is found in you realizing your value and your place in the kingdom of God as an image bearer of God. That is the only way to understand the, the, appreciate the fullness of human dignity is in relationship with God himself. And so what we have is a very real sense in which the gospel is a call back to true human dignity. 
As the gospel calls you to come and to be reconciled with your father, to come and to take your place in his kingdom, what the gospel is calling you to is to live in the dignity for which you were first and originally intended. And that brings us to the final part of our context, and that is the setting. The setting is the kingdom. The setting is his kingdom. When Genesis 1 opens up, you you know there are certain words that when you use them, you, you hear one word, you expect to hear the other one, right? Like, like peanut butter, jelly, right? I mean, you can't even hear the word peanut butter without hearing the word jelly. Like spaghetti, meatballs, right? Bama National Championship. It's a word association game. You know what I'm saying? A word association game. There are, are phrases and words like this in the Bible. So it says, in the beginning. Virtually every other time the word beginning is used throughout the scripture, do you know what comes with it? The end. Remember, Revelation twenty-two thirteen. 13, it says what? Jesus calls himself the beginning and the end. From the beginning, from the beginning, out of the gate. Chapter one, verse one, in the beginning, God is telling us there is an end that is coming. There is an end that is in mind. This is not going to be random. This is not going to be out of order. This is not gonna catch me by surprise. I am not naive about Genesis chapter three. I am not naive about human sin. I am not naive about human suffering, but, but, but there is an end that is coming. There is an end to which we are going and that end will be far more glorious than even the beginning was. That in the beginning he made everything and it was good and he made everything and it brought him glory but in the end, in the end there will be a song of redemption on the lips of his creation and it will be a greater song than the song that the mountains could sing in the beginning a greater song than Adam could imagine. It will be a richer testimony to the sovereign, wise loving king. God isn't caught off guard by what's going to happen in the next chapter. God's expecting it. But God's going to work in it. God's going to work through it. God's going to manipulate it so that ultimately it brings you good and it brings him glory. You see, the garden is the pattern for the kingdom. The garden is the pattern for the kingdom. Think about how both of the tellings from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, think about how they end. Genesis 1 ends, well, actually ends at the beginning of chapter 2. I don't really know why it did that way. But the seventh day ends with what? Rest. After every day, did you notice there's a pattern, right? And it was morning and it was evening the first day, the second day, the third day, until you get to the seventh day. There's a break in the pattern. On the seventh day, the creation has been finished. The earth has been formed. Man is in the garden exercising his dominion. Woman has been made. They are complete. They have have held fast to one another. They have begun to experience the blessing of God and to multiply under the provision of God. And it says on the seventh day that God rested, but there there is no darkness that comes. Every day the darkness comes and it is a reminder of the chaos that used to be. And morning comes every single day to remind that there is still new mercies that are yet to come. But not on the seventh day. Not on the seventh day. On the seventh day the darkness never shows up. The chaos never returns. On the seventh day there is rest and there is rest only. The end of chapter 2. Man and woman have been formed and they've been created and put together. And do you know what it says? There they were naked in the garden and they were unashamed. 
they were unashamed. That is, they stood before God unapologetic and unafraid. They stood with one another and they were uninhibited. There was not even a fig leaf degree of separation among them. That their conscience was clear. That their, their lives were clean. They were not worried about the condemning voice. They were not worried about measuring up. They were not worried about cowboying up. They were not worried about being good enough or being tough enough or, or passing under some judgment. No, there they were in the presence of God and in the presence of each other and they were unashamed. Have you lived a second in your life in which you can actually say without any hesitation that there was no shame, no condemning voice in your life? You bring those together and what do you have? You have the kingdom. You have the kingdom. You have the day that is coming, the end that is certain, in which what we will know is only rest. Come, you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will find you rest. Come to me, you who are filled with tears, and I will wipe them clean. Come to me, you who can't sleep at night, and I will put you to rest. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No shame, no, no mark of sin, no mark of the curses on you, no condemning voice, no guilty conscience, no insomnia. No, 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 no. You come together and in the kingdom you rest in Christ, unafraid of the holiness of God in whose presence you are in. You see, in the kingdom, the story really is happily ever after. In the kingdom, the story really is happily ever after. And if you're in Christ, your story really will, in spite of your wretchedness, in spite of your struggles, in spite of you trying to be good enough, in spite of your measuring, in spite of your mistakes, in spite of your shortcomings, in spite of your failings, in spite of all of that, because of the grace of Jesus Christ, because of the gospel of our loving King, you, 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 will end happily ever after. That's the story we see started here. That's the king bringing his people into the full enjoyment of his kingdom. It's the gospel, and it begins on page one. Let's pray together. Hi, I'm Cody Hill. I'm the lead pastor here at Iron City. Thank you so much for connecting with us online. I hope in the days ahead that we'll have an opportunity to connect with you in person. On our website, ironcity.org, you'll see a number of different opportunities that you have to connect with our church and opportunities that we're seeking to engage our community and minister to our church family. I'd like to especially invite you to come and be a part of one of our connection groups that meet at 9 o'clock immediately preceding our Sunday morning worship service. You'll find that we're not a perfect church, but we are a passionate church. We take following Jesus very seriously, but we try not to take ourselves too seriously. So I hope you'll come this Sunday at 10.15 and worship with us and let us get to know you a little bit better.